Good morning. It's a hot one out there, isn't it? Well, I'll tell you what. It's nice and cool in here. Amen? And so let's, let's begin our service day with a, with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that we can come into your presence today. Lord, as we look closer into the life of Gideon, we want to thank you that you take broken, imperfect men and you take broken, imperfect women in Scripture and you do great and mighty things with them. Lord, that gives us hope because we are broken people and we, are, we have our flaws. But yet you have reached down to us as a loving Father and have related to us and build our faith in you. And Lord, for that we worship you and we thank you so much. Lord, as we look into your word today, I pray that it would inspire us to achieve the great things that you've called us to do. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, if you'll turn in your Bibles to uh, Judges, we'll be in chapter 7 today. And we're in our Fixer Upper series, and the idea behind that is where you take something that's broken, and uh, like a, a Fixer Upper house, and you transform it into something that's beautiful, something that, of, of great value. And really, that's what God does in our lives. Amen? And, uh, and we never once see God in Scripture picking someone because he thought, I just need that person. He picks us as broken people, and he does great and mighty things with us. So we're going to look at the, the before, the divine transformation, and the after. And last week, we began by looking at uh, the life of Gideon. And uh, to remind you of the context of this, we're in, in the book of Judges, and we see this cycle take place all through the book of Judges, where they sin, usually through Baal worship. Then, then God allows other enemies to, uh, to come in and cause suffering into their lives, just as he had had said that would happen, and and we see that happening here as well. Then they finally get on their knees, and they pray, and they repent, uh, prayers of supplication to the Lord. And he sends salvation usually through uh, some form of a hero. They call them judges in in this book, uh, but they're deliverers, they're rescuers, and he sends somebody uh, to, to rescue them. Then they experience a piece of what I call shalom, because it's the Hebrew word for peace and prosperity. It just means when things are are really running on all cylinders the way they were designed to be running. And then they would forget God and they would repeat the sin. They would become self-reliant and fall right back into the sinful pattern. And we see this over and over and over again throughout the book of Judges. This time we're seeing, once again, they fell into Baal worship and now they're, they're suffering at the hands of the Midianites. And that's the, the context. When we look at the, the before picture, which we did last week, of the life of Gideon, we, we saw a couple things. We saw first that he was a coward, right? He was a coward. Instead of raising up an army to go off and fight the Midianites, what was he doing? He was, he was threshing his wheat inside the wine press so that the Midianites could not find him. They, they could not see him. He's hiding from them. You might remember that God asked him to cut down the altar of Baal that his father had set up. And and, and so he was supposed to cut down this altar, and he eventually did do it, but he was afraid to do it in public, and so he did it at night so that no one would know that it was him that did it. And we see this cowardice uh, going on. We also see that he was a skeptic. Um, um, he was a skeptic. He demanded test after test to prove that God was who he said he was and that he would do what he said he would do. And you might remember the laying out of the fleece, and he did it one way, and, and, and then God, God obliged. He did it another way, and God obliged. He just he wanted test after test of proof that uh, God was who he said he was. And then we also saw that he was fearful. 
He was fearful. He was afraid to fight the Midianites because, in his own words, he was a weak man from a weak family and a weak tribe, or a weak clan of a weak tribe. Who am I? I can't do this, God. And how many of you have ever felt like you've been there before? God, I cannot do what you've called me to do. And then last week I shared a story, and I actually forgot, if you'll forgive me, to, to tell the second half of the story. But I shared a story, for those who are just joining us this week, um, uh, about how I felt that same way as Gideon, because God is calling him this, this mighty man of valor and telling him that he's going to accomplish great things and that he's going to liberate the, the Israelites from the Midianites. And he just said, I, I, don't, I don't think I can do this. And, and it reminded me of when I was in seventh grade and I had joined the wrestling team and, and, uh, and I was excited about it because it was a new wrestling team for our school and, and, uh, and I just felt like I was doing pretty good wrestling against the, some of the local schools and when I had our first tournament and for a seventh grader this was my first chance to actually earn any medal in my life, right? And so if you remember back to seventh grade, that would be a big deal and I was all excited and I come to my first match and, and, and the guy had more techniques than I did and he beat me. And I was defeated. I went to the bleachers and I sat by myself and I'm thinking, oh man, I, I, was, I just thought I was going to be able to do well and I, and I wasn't. And then my brother came along and he put his arm around me and he said, Dave, can I show you something? Sure. And I, I, was walk, I walked off with him defeated. He goes, he goes to the table and he said, he said, you see these medals here? You see this gold medal in your weight class? Yeah, I see it. So that's not yours. <laughs> so encouraging. He says, you see the silver medal? That one's not yours either, right? Because you're allowed one loss to get a silver medal, and it has to happen at the end of the day. You can't start the day off. And uh, then he points to that, that bronze medal, and he says, you see this bronze medal? That one is yours. And so I explained that. I used that story to share how I felt in, in that moment and how it was parallel to, to that of Gideon. And, and, but I forgot to bring up the rest of the story. I had several people, so did you get the, gold, the, or the, gold, the, uh, the bronze medal or not? And if I remember, I'll tell you at the end of the day today. <laughs> so that's just to make you pay attention, right? So, no, but, this, but the before picture of Gideon was much like that before picture uh, uh, where I felt in that moment, like defeated, and someone could tell me that I could do this, but I didn't believe it. Does that make sense? That's where Gideon was at in, 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 in this story as well. Now, last week we did get a little bit into the divine transformation. We got to see how God was, was using a series of faith-building events. And we walked through three of six of those last week. We're going to walk through the, 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 the last three today. But I want us to see all three of them because uh, of the ones we already talked about in progression. Because I believe that what we find here in, in, these, in these six events is a progression that God was using. That he was taking him from being this cowardly, skeptical, fearful man and turning him into something much, much more than that. And we see these steps. And in fact, in my mind, I would, I, if you're taking notes, I would call it steps of transformation. Uh, it's really steps of transformation into building a hero uh, of the faith. And that's, that's what he was doing. So if we walk through the three that we already talked about, uh, real quickly, first there was the offering. This was where... Uh, uh, where Gideon decided to build an offering and alter the earth, an offering the way that the Leviticus said to, because in Leviticus, Yahweh would consume the offering up. So he does this offering, and it's just him and, and, and Yahweh, the Lord, right there. And he builds it, and then 
then the Lord consumes the offering. So immediately, it, he knows the identity of this person that he's talking with. He knows that he's talking with Yahweh. He knows that he's talking with the Lord. And, uh, and so God consumed that offering. And that, that really resolved the issue of, of God's identity. I would say step number one then, if we were to look at this as, as the steps of progression, number one is identify who God is. You know, the Bible says multiple times that the fear of the Lord is what? The beginning of wisdom. You cannot skip that step. You have to begin everything. If you're going to understand anything about life, you have to begin with the understanding of who the Lord is and who Yahweh is. If you don't have that understanding, you can build all sorts of, of knowledge, and it's like building a, a, a skyscraper with no foundation. It's not going to stand up for long. That makes sense? You have to begin with that understanding uh, that the fear of the Lord uh, be, is the beginning of wisdom. In fact, um, I was reminded this week that the Pope himself it, it says that you can skip that step. You might have seen the video. It, it, was, uh, it was online. It's been online for several weeks. But of this little boy who comes up to the Pope and he, and he asks if his dad is in heaven. And he explains that his, his dad had no belief in God. He was an atheist. He had no belief in God. But he did some good things in his life. And do you, you recognize what the Pope said to that child? Oh, there's no way that your father is not in heaven. What is he saying? Oh, you could skip the whole belief in God thing and just build good works. Is that the gospel we find in Scripture? No. It is not. Why? Because the moment we start building our salvation on good works, we become self-reliant and we fall right back into the cycle of the judges. Amen. And, uh, and so we see, identify who God is. You have to begin with an understanding of who he is. The second one was the altar. Um, God had promised Gideon that he, if he would chop down the altar to Baal, that he would not die. And, uh, and, and he was nervous, and so he did it at night, right? He, he, uh, he did it. But even in that process, what you find is that many of the people, including people from his own family, through that event came to the conclusion that Baal was not worthy of worship. He could not protect himself. He could not defend himself. And, and so his, his family, which was a large family, his family and the, the townspeople began to realize that Baal was not someone that was worthy to be worshipped. That's a, that's a step in the process, isn't it? So I would say step number two is to tear down all idols. I'll tell you what, this is not just transformation for a person. This is what we need is transformation for a country. Amen. We need to first recognize who God is, and then we need to tear down all the idols. What do we see going on in our country? We're saying it, it's freedom from religion instead of freedom of religion is becoming the norm, right? Tearing down all idols, our culture is full of idols things that are taking the place of God. It doesn't always have to be an image of a false God. It's anything that is taking the place of God as the number one place. That instead of, it's not just the number one place in our lives. It's, it's, in fact, it's not like we can add God to our lives. It's that we recognize that he is supreme to us and that we become a small part of his life instead. Even though we're a big part in his life because his capacity to love is without limits. And, and so that's the, that's this idea of altar. I'd say the, 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 the step that we have to take there, tear down any of those idols that takes place. The third one was the, the fleece from last week and how Gideon struggled to believe and he just, 
he struggled to believe and was asking uh, God to, to, to just oblige him with all of these weird demands and, uh, so, that, so that he would know it was God. And the issue there is really all about trust. And I'd say, number three, at some point, we have to come to that point where we just trust in God and say, if you say it, then I believe it. Culture may disagree. I don't care. If God says it, I believe it. Right? Um, those around me, may, logically, I might not understand it always, but if God says it, then I believe it. Isn't that the way we should live our lives? And then usually over time, we start realizing, oh, now I see why God says that. Oh, now it makes sense. You know? I remember the first time I really pondered the turn the other cheek verse in Scripture. And I thought, that makes no sense. You know, I tried to find some way to believe something differently. I thought maybe turn his cheek is like their way of saying jack his jaw. I don't know. No. I studied Greek. It doesn't work. It doesn't mean that. And so why? Because we want to believe what we think, what comes naturally to us. But that's not... You have to say, if God says, but you know what? You start living, turn the other cheek, and all of a sudden you start not winning arguments or winning fights. You start winning people. You say, oh, yeah, it makes sense now, right? And that's the way it is as we study in, uh, God and, and, and understand. We come to a point where we have to just completely trust in God. Well, that took us to the end of, of chapter 6, and, uh, and we have this just a little bit of faith that that Gideon has. And God is now going to take that little bit of faith and he's going to stretch it and prepare him for something, for something fantastic. So with that in mind, let's turn to Joshua chapter 7, verse 1. Then Jerubel, that is Gideon, and all the people who were with him rose early and encamped beside the well of Harad so that the camp of the Midianites was on the north side of them by the hill of Morah in the valley. There's a couple observations, even as this sets us up for what's about to take place. First of all, did you notice that there's a little nickname given to Gideon here? And they call him Jerubel. Do you notice what root word is in the word Jerubel? Baal, right? And so it's interesting that now they've given him a nickname that actually has the word Baal right in it. Um, and and what, the, what the name actually means is it means Baal's contender. Baal's contender. And this is actually a fighting term for those who enjoy boxing or or MMA or anything. It's, it's, a, it's a fighting term. And when you say contender, the idea of a contender is the person who is challenging the champion. Right? It's the person who is challenging the champion. And so who was the champion in, in the culture of the day? It was Baal. That was their god. And here he comes in and he chops down, which is great because his name, Gideon, means hacker or chopper. And he comes down, he chops down the altar to Baal. And now the people give him a new name and they call him Jerubal. Baal's contender. Like, you better watch out, Baal, because Gideon's here. Right? That's the name that the people gave him. I think that's interesting. So we see this positive spin in the verse, but we also see uh, something interesting because where it talks about the well of Harad, uh, the, the well of Harad literally means the well of trembling. Uh, it's likely, too, because we see this in, in other points in this passage even, where they use the names of places that those names weren't those names until after the story took place. Right? So they went to the place that is now called the Well of Harad, but it's called the Well of Harad because of what they did there. The word Harad means trembling. It's the Well of Trembling. Why? Because where did they go? They went to the well where there's a little ridge, right on the other side of the ridge, according to this verse, is where there were the, the Midianites were camped. 
So they're just outside the camp, just a small ridge, a small set of hills between them and the enemy. And they went to that well, and they were trembling. So we see this, that, that there's a, a contender of Baal, but there's also this trembling that's going on, and, there, and there's a fearfulness that's going on, and, and that's the setup for us. Let's continue verse 2. <clears throat> and the Lord said to Gideon, The people who are with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into, your, into their hands, lest Israel claim glory for itself against me, saying, My own hand has saved me. This is a huge, huge verse. Isn't it? It may not be that long, but the theological impact of this verse, this teaches us so much about the nature of how God relates to us. Does it not? I mean, you would think from a human perspective, the more people you can recruit, the better. I mean, you have what we, what we learned was an innumerable amount of Midianites, right? That's, uh, that's what, we've, what we found in chapter 6. Innumerable. They don't even have a count. And you're going against them. We find out later there's 32,000 people so far. That's what they had with them. And, and they're trembling because they are way outnumbered. And, and God says, there's too many of you. Why? Because, like it says, if, if you take, or if you defeat the Midianites with this group of people, you will take the credit for yourselves. And you'll forget God. You can go right back into that cycle again. There's a, uh, there's a quote from Gary Inrig in his commentary on the book of Judges, and this is what he writes on that. He said, Judges 7-2 is one of the most important verses in the Bible for understanding God's principles of spiritual warfare. God is not interested in simply giving his people victory. Actually, before we finish the sentence, think about that for a moment. Right? God is not interested in simply giving his people victory. Joel Osteen, I hope you're listening. <laughs> he is concerned with teaching us trust. In fact, if our victories make us self-reliant, they are ultimately more disastrous than defeat. That's a great quote, isn't it? I mean, that, that if God were just giving us victories and, and, and victory after victory after victory, well, there would be no growing in our relationship with God. We would not have to develop trust. It's just, oh, accept Jesus Christ and we get victories? Oh, awesome. And you know what? There's a lot of people preaching that gospel right now. If you were at home and you turned on your TV, probably more than half of the preachers you would hear if you flipped through the channels would be preaching the, the exact opposite of what, what you learn in God's Word. And we find that... We find that uh, definitely the case here. You know, I think sometimes we get this idea that God is a transactional God in the sense of, okay, I made this transaction for you. I paid for your sins. If you're willing to accept it, then I will give you this, and I'll give you victories. Now you get victories for the rest of your life. But what we really find in Scripture is a God who's more concerned with relationship. And he wants to build us up. And, and so he, he takes us from where we are. And, and it, whether we're, we could be this cowardly, fearful, skeptical person... Okay, I'm going to move you one step, and I'm going to, and I'm going to build you, and I'm going to, create, I'm going to create opportunities. Some of those are going to be victories. Some of those are going to be defeats. But what, what Paul tells us in Romans is all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are called according to his purpose. And God uses these things to build trust in our lives. Have you ever thought about that? Sometimes a defeat is a gift from God because he was teaching you something. 
I mean, think about that. I, I feel that even if I had won that first match, that would have been a different thing. I, that, that, that opportunity to learn some, I learned more through that, through that loss than I did through several wins that I had had in, in wrestling after that. And that's the way God works with us. See, you know, we can think of this. Think of the cycle of judges for a moment. And re- remember this. I mean, you, we know the pattern here. Um, they get themselves into trouble. God saves. They forget God. And they get back into trouble, right? That's, that's basically the cycle. Why? Because they became self-reliant. They start thinking, oh, well, we did this. We don't need God. We, they're self-reliant. What was God doing in, in Judges 7? He's giving them a way to break this cycle. He's given a way to get out of this cycle and say, you don't have to become self-reliant. You can do this in such a way that, that you can have total trust in God and, and forget yourselves, and then you'll have success, and that success will actually be helpful to you instead of damaging to you. And so how does God make it easy for them? He decided to save them in a way that Israel could clearly not take the credit for the victory. So let's read about that. Judges 7.3. Now, therefore... Proclaim in the hearing of the people, saying, Whoever is fearful and afraid, let him turn and depart at once from Mount Gilead. And 22,000 of the people returned, and 10,000 remained. So we see here, they started with 32,000 people, right? Now you have 10,000 of them staying, 22,000 of them left and went home. And all you had to do was say, How many of you are afraid? How many of you are afraid? Well, more than two-thirds of them said, that's me, and they left. I call this event, uh, if, we, if we look at that, uh, well, let me actually just throw in one other thing, just to remind you too, we got 10,000 people, they were outnumbered with 32,000, um, they had 10,000 now, and remember what we read back in chapter 6, for they, the Midianites, would come up with their livestock and their tents, coming in as numerous as locusts, both they and their camels were without number, and they would enter the land to destroy it. This is what they're up against. And now you've only got 10,000 people. How many of you would be thinking about revolting against Gideon at this point? Right? I mean, that happens. I call this, this event, uh, this fourth event, I call it the fear factor. I, I, I look at it because the issue that God used to say, this is how I want to separate those who are going to continue and those who aren't, are those who had a factor, they had, the, they had fear. And if you want to quit, you're, you can quit. And God reduces the numbers by a, by a third, or two, one third, based upon the level of fear that they had. Everyone was free to leave if they wanted to, but they would just miss out. And they did miss out on quite a bit. Now, if you want to be a hero, I think yeah, you've got to come to that point. A hero of faith where you learn to get a grip on fear. That's step number four. Get a grip on your fear. Now, you say, but I'm just not a brave person by nature. It has nothing to do with you. It has everything to do with steps one, two, and three. It has everything to do with it. We recognize who God is. We tear down the idols in our lives. We learn to trust God. Then there's no place for fear in our lives anymore. We, we, we recognize that, and, and why would we have fear when we know that God's in control? And I believe that this event, by, by him reducing the numbers, uh, 
uh, quite a bit here. He reduced the number. I think it served two purposes. Number one, um, it rewarded those who were brave enough to stick around. Those who were brave enough to stick around, hey, could always say, we were, we were one of the ones who were brave enough to stick around. Those who, who had left, it was a lesson to them as well. In fact, by the end of the story, they're back involved. But I think, too, that another purpose of that event is, is that it reduced the number of people so that they would be less likely to take credit for the victory when God provided it. Right? In context, that makes, that makes sense. But this was not enough. God's not done yet. That's what, you got to love this story, right? Look at verse 4 through 7. This is what we read. But the Lord said to Gideon, The people are still too many. Bring them down to the water, and I will test them for you there. Wow. You know what? 10,000, that's too many. I don't know about you, but if I were Gideon, I would, you know, I'm a strategic thinker. And in my mind, I'd say, Lord, um, 10,000 is not too many. But you never want to contradict God, amen? And God is teaching him something, teaching him that it's not about numbers. God says, I'm going to test them, test them there. Then he goes on to verse, uh, the second half of verse 4. Then it will be that of whom I say to you, this one shall go with you, the same shall go with you. And whomever I say to you, this one shall not go with you, the same shall not go. So he brought the people down to the water, and the Lord said to Gideon, Everyone who laps from the water with his tongue as a dog laps, you shall set apart by himself. Likewise, everyone who gets down on his knees to drink. And the number of those who laughed, putting their hand to their mouth, was 300 men. But all the rest of the people got down on their knees to drink the water. Then the Lord said to Gideon, By the 300 men who laughed, I will save you and deliver the Midianites into your hand. Let all the other people go, every man to his place. Imagine that. He he went from from 32,000 to 10,000, and then now that 22,000, they're already gone, now you have an additional 9,700 who are asked to leave, they're brave enough to stay, but he asks them to leave, and leaving, and I don't know if you can even see from where you're at, but there's a little orange sliver there, and that's the 300 that are left. And you were outnumbered to begin with. How many of you would be excited about the strategy now? Wait, uh, we're moving in the wrong direction. I call this event, I I just call it the random elimination because uh, at this point God reduces the number significantly, but this time he did so in a random random way um, that 9,700 of them who were just as brave as the 300 were asked to leave. And I think it's obvious here, God's making a point. And he's driving this point home that it isn't about numbers. Why? Because numbers is reliance on people. What's it all about? Reliance on God. That's the way to break the cycle of judges. To take the reliance off of yourself, take the credit off of yourself, put it back on God. Here's the point to, to this. God does not need our help to win battles. God doesn't need our help to win battles. But he chooses to use us for our own spiritual growth. The battles that we fight are not because God needs us. You know that? It's because he's allowing them into our lives because he loves us. He wants to have a relationship with us. And he's giving us opportunity, giving us our successes, giving us our failures to grow us. That's different than any religion you'll find on the planet. I'm telling you right now. You will never find a religion 
like that. It's all about us earning something with the God up there. This is God coming down to us and is building us up. You won't find that in any religion on the planet. What a beautiful thing it is. What a, what a beautiful thing it is. Which brings us to step number five. I say it's eliminate pride. In our journey to courage, we have to eliminate pride from the equation. In all of our ministries and everything that we do for God, we need to eliminate pride. See, God chooses to use us. But not so that we can lift ourselves up. I mean, we can't take the credit for the things that God does in and through us. They're his victories, amen? amen. They're his victories. And, and we can't take pride in that. And In fact, when we think of some applications of how this could apply to us in life, I, I think that sometimes we could abuse this by wanting the ministries that are most visible. Have you ever read 1 Corinthians? That's what they're arguing about. Oh, well, some of them want the, they want the good gifts. And Paul's like, they're all good gifts. Oh, no, I don't want the gift that, where I do it at home and no one sees it. I mean, who wants the gift of generosity, right? I mean, read, that's, that's what 1 Corinthians is about. Who wants the gift of generosity? I don't want the gift of generosity. I want the gift of, of healing or, or the gift of tongues or the gift of, uh, I want some of these gifts that everyone can say, wow, look at that. But the moment we do that, what's going on? We're taking credit for something that God does. Why would we want something that brings the light on us when God, that's not the whole, that's the whole point is for us to use our gifts to reflect the glory to God, right? Say, oh, well, that, that's maybe in the First Corinthians church, but never in the churches today. But you talk to any music pastor in, in any church, and I can say this is true of any church I worked in that, that, uh, that if you talk to the music pastors, they could say that this has happened in, in their churches where, where sometimes even with special music, there could be fights over who gets that beloved morning service right before the message slot. Right? Like, wait a minute. Who's this about? It's about God. I'm glad to see that. I don't, we don't, I don't see that so much uh, going on right here, but I'll tell you, it's alive and well in America today where we... We, we do ministries so that we can take the credit for it. And God's saying, no, I'm going to have victories in such a way that, that the credit doesn't go to you. In fact, he chooses the weak to show he's strong. So if he cho- chooses us, what does that mean? Right? He, he chooses the ignorant to show his wisdom. He chose us. What does that mean about us? You know, uh, we, we, we get victories sometimes, but it's not because of us. It's because of God. And we get, we get losses and defeats sometimes, sometimes because that God's just trying to teach us or because he knows a victory would be more damaging to us because we become self-reliant. And we let the pride come to our heads. We can't let that happen. and We can't be preoccupied with, with getting all the credit. You know, it was a blessing to me uh, a couple weeks ago. I got to sit down with some people that I, I work with in different Contexts, And so we had people from Servant Leaders Ministry, and we had people from Anchor Christian University, and people from Pilgrimage. It's, a, it's an outdoor education, well, not just education, it's a mentoring type of program. And these three Christian organizations saying, we have the same values. So we came together, we met for a day and a half, and just started talking, how can we help each other out? And through this, we're seeing ways that we can take some of the Spanish people taking the Servant Leaders Program can actually get their degrees for free. Real degrees. Accredited degrees for free. Why? And, 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 and yet they're able to take some of the materials that some of the servant leaders have produced. And, and you know what was never discussed in that day and a half? Two things. Never discussed. Money or credit. 
And you see all these beautiful things come out of it when people step out of the way and say, this is God's ministry. We just want to see people come to him. We want to see people grow in their relationship with God. And you see these people from different organizations who put a lot of time and effort into their ministry say, how can we together accomplish the Great Commission better? Isn't that awesome? It's awesome. And what a blessing it was to, to, to sit there with a group of guys who, who got rid of themselves and just worried about the Great Commission. And wow, what a beautiful thing that was. No credit, no money. It's just let God do his thing. It's eliminate pride. Here's another point to, to bring up. I think sometimes God does not grant us success if we're going to get the glory. And this is not because he's some kind of a glory hog but because he knows that receiving praise will be damaging to us. We've got to get rid of, we have to eliminate the pride so that we're in a place in our faith journey where God can use us for something great. Does that make sense? That's where we're at. Look at verse 8. So the people took provisions and their trumpets in their hands, and he sent away all the rest of Israel, every man to his tent, and retained those 300 men. Now the camp of Midian was below him in the valley. So he took these 300 men, sent everyone else home, and now he's gone up to that ridge, and they're overlooking this innumerable amount of Midianites. That's where they're at. You know the amazing thing about this verse is not what they took with them, it's what they didn't take with them. Did you notice that? What did they take with them? They, they, they took uh, food, which is usually kept in bags or, uh, or pitchers, right? And they brought torches. What's missing from that list that you would bring if you were going to fight this battle? Swords, right? Shield, maybe? Helmet? Um, an Uzi? I don't know. Uh, I, there are a lot of things I could think of that I would want to take with me. And what do they take? They take their food and they take their light. That's it. Talk about faith and, 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 and God that he's going to do something. This is against an innumerable army. Would you be scared? Would you? I think we would. I would be. But God had one last faith-building experience up his sleeve. Look at uh, verses 9 through 11. <clears throat> it happened on the same night that the Lord said to him, Arise, go down against the camp, for I have delivered it into your hand. But if you are afraid to go down, go down to the camp with Pura, your, your servant. And you shall hear what they say, and afterward your hands shall be strengthened to go down against the camp. Then he went down with Urah, his servant, to the outpost of the armed men who were in the camp. Uh, one thing to notice here, was Gideon still afraid? Yes, he was. How do we know? God says, if you're afraid, take Pura, right? What did he do? He took Pura, right? So he's afraid. He's, he's afraid, but he's doing it. He's doing it anyway. You know, trusting in God does not mean that you have no fear. I mean, step four wasn't wasn't to get, rid, to, to get rid of fear. It's to get a grip on your fear. Let fear have its place below your trust. Right? So he's still trusting in God, and he's doing what God says. And God says, when you go down there, I'm going to show you something, and you're going to have faith. It's going to strengthen your hands, and, uh, and you're going to be good. Well, what was that? Look at verse 12 and 13. It says, Now the Midianites and Amalekites, all the people of the east, were lying in the valley as numerous as locusts, and their camels were without number as the sand by the seashore in multitude. And when Gideon had come, there was a man telling a dream to his companion. And he said, I have had a dream. To my surprise, a loaf of barley bread tumbled into the camp of Midian, 
And it came to a tent and struck it so that it fell and overturned, and the tent was collapsed. So here, one of the, one of the few advantages of having an army that's as numerous as this is that you can probably sneak in unnoticed. You know, you go against an army of 300 people, and a stranger walks in, you're going to notice. Here, there's enough people. They were able to walk in, since it's just two of them, unnoticed. They come up to, to, to the side of a tent, and they start listening, and, and, which is why I call this event, this sixth event, I call it the eavesdropping event, right? And so they come, they come to the side of this tent, and they're just eavesdropping. They're listening in to this conversation. And in this conversation, the guy says, man, I had this, this horrible dream last night. I had this dream that there was a loaf of barley bread, and, and that it's rolling down the hill, and it hits our tent, and the tent is overturned. And they said, what could that mean? What could this mean? And, and they were very superstitious people as part of their religion. And look what the, the answer to that is. Verse 14, then his companion answered and said, this is nothing else but the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. Into his hand, God has delivered Midian and the whole camp. Here, for the first time, Gideon's hearing this from their enemies. Gideon's afraid, and all of a sudden he hears, they're actually afraid of you, Gideon. Not because of anything Gideon had done, but because of something that God had done, and he was terrorizing them in their dreams. Right? So they're, they're afraid of, for their lives, and, but they're numerous, and, and they're afraid of us. Yeah, in fact, you look at the culture today, we are definitely a small portion of the culture today, but, but if there's anything that scares our culture today, it's people who actually believe what we preach from the Bible. And they're afraid of us too, and, and he began to, to notice that, and, and, uh, and he recognized that for the, for the first time. He re- recognized that. In fact, look at verse 15. You read this, and so it was when Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation that he worshipped. He returned to the camp of Israel and, and said, Arise, for the Lord has delivered the camp of Midian into your hand. Right? When you read this, your jaw should drop. Why? Because this is the same man that says, No, I need proof after proof after proof that you're going to do what you say. And all of a sudden, he's going back to the people saying, Get up, everybody, because the Lord has already delivered. That's past tense. He's saying, This is as good as done. We have got this thing. Total change. Total change in the, in the person of Gideon here. Complete 180. I would say uh, this too. When you, look at, when you look at all of this, what, you notice where it all leads? All of this leads us to a point uh, that, that's important. And they led to worship. They led to worship. If you, if you notice back in the verse it says, And so it was when Gideon heard the telling of, of the dream and its interpretation that he worshipped. When he finally got there, what did it look like? Worship. He worshiped God. Uh, I would say, say this, you know, God doesn't need anything that we have to offer. What does he want? Our worship. He wants an intimate relationship with him. That's what he wants. Oh, but I can bring, I have so much to offer the Lord. Uh-uh, no, you don't get it yet. It's when I'm willing to Forget all that and just trust in God. And, and we come to that realization, God is providing the victory. Even though we've got 300 people against this army, I don't know how God's going to do it, but I can't wait to see it. God, this is going to be awesome. How many times have you gone into a major obstacle in life with that attitude? Like, wow, this major thing just dropped into my lap? Awesome. Can't wait to see how God's going to get me out of this. But you have such confidence in God that I can't wait to see what God's going to do. That's where Gideon finally made it in his life. He's saying, I, I can't wait to see what God's going to do. And they just worshipped God. 
I would say step six is make your ministry an act of worship. Make it an act of worship, just like, all right, I'm going to do what God's called me to do as, as a way of worshiping God and showing my faith in God. Make your ministry an act of worship. By the way, it is very difficult for you to seek credit for your own ministry when you do your ministry as an act of worship to God. And then notice, too, that immediately, what does Gideon do? He goes right back to the camp of Israel, and he starts spreading this optimism around, and, and he's, he's spreading, in fact, this type of heroism is contagious, is it not? Right, we're going to see that how contagious it was in a moment, but that's exactly what it does. It says, he returned to the camp of Israel and said, arise, for the Lord has delivered the camp of Midian into your hands. And so we see this transformation take its full course here. Now let's look at the, the after pictures. What, now, what, is, what does he look like after this transformation? Let's read verse 16 through 18. Then he divided the 300 men into three companies, and he put a trumpet into every man's hand with empty pitchers and torches inside the pitchers. And he said to them, look at me and do likewise. Watch, and when I come to the edge of the camp, you shall do as I do. Verse 18, when I blow the trumpet, I and all who are with me, then you also blow the trumpets on every side of the whole camp and say the sword of the Lord and of Gideon. You look at this and you say, well, this is not the same guy that we read about in chapter 6, is it? This is, the, this is not the same coward, the same skeptic, the same fearful person. In fact, instead of being a coward, now he's courageous. Remember, he was hiding in the wine presses to, to thresh his wheat. He was cutting down the altar of Baal at night, and now he's courageous. And the same man is taking 300 people against an innumerable army. What an amazing thing. By the way, with trumpets and torches, and pitchers. That's it. That was his plan. I, mean, I don't know about you. I, I, I hear that plan, and I think, that doesn't sound like a great idea. It doesn't matter. That's the whole point. It's not the strategy. We can bring our strategies. We can bring all those things. And there's nothing wrong with being strategic. I'm not saying that. And sometimes God can use that. But God was purposely not doing that here because he knew the lesson they needed to learn was that it's not about us. It's all about him. He... We saw that he was a skeptic. Now he's completely trusting. Where he was once skeptical that God would be able to save him, now he's saying to everybody else, it's a done deal. He's already done it. He has delivered them into our hands. He is, he is now the epitome of optimism. The exact opposite of what he was. He, had, he was once fearful, now he's fearless. He's fearless. In fact, just look what he did. Look at verse 19. It says, so Gideon and the hundred men who were with him came to the outpost of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch, just as they had posted the watch. And they blew the trumpets and broke the pitchers that were in their hands. Then the three companies blew the trumpets and broke the pitchers, and they held the torches in their left hands and the trumpets in their right hands. That means there's no other hands for, for swords. And, uh, and they're blowing, and they cried, the sword of the Lord and of Gideon. They fearlessly charge down there into the many nights and into what seems like it's going to be the, the worst military blunder of all times. 300 men going after you with a torch and, and uh, you know, I just picture the, the old uh, crocodile Dundee saying, that's not a life, right? I could just, that's what I see going into this and, 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 and yet what happens? Verse 21, and every man stood in his place all around the camp and the whole army ran and cried out 
and fled. These people were afraid because of what God had done. They were running around, they're afraid. Verse 22, when the 300 blew the trumpets, the Lord set every man's sword against his companion throughout the whole camp. And the army fled to Beth Acacia toward Zerera, uh, as far as the border of Abel, Mahola, and Tavath. So you, you see what's going on. They wake up, and all of a sudden they see these torches, and they've been afraid that the Lord's going to deliver it. And so they just get up, and they start swinging their swords, and guess what's happening? They're killing each other with their own swords. I mean, that, that just doesn't happen, does it? Unless God's in it. And God is giving them a victory in such a way that they could know beyond a shadow of a doubt. This was not their great strategies. This was not their power. It was not their numbers. It was God. It was God doing it. And, and now, now God was doing something fantastic. Look at verse 23. And the, men, and the men of Israel gathered together from Naphtali, Asher, and all Manasseh and pursued the Midianites. What's going on now? People are joining in. People who had dropped out earlier. Some of them had dropped out because they were fearful. Some of them had dropped out because God said, no, I'm, I'm, I'm going to use the 300. And all of a sudden, the entire people of Israel are saying, wait, I want in on this action. I mean, this is great. I mean, if God's in this, we can do this. And so all these, these people from, uh, from the, the lower tribes there join in. Look at verse 24. Uh, we read this. Um, then Gideon sent messengers throughout all the mountains of Ephraim, saying, Come down against the Midianites and seize from them the watering places as far as Beth Barah and the Jordan. Then all the men of Ephraim gathered together and seized the watering places as far as Beth Barah and the Jordan. And they captured two princes of the Midianites, Oreb and Zeb. They killed Oreb at the rock of Oreb, and Zeb they killed at the winepress of Zeb, which again, those are places that were named after these events, named because of these events. Goes on to say, they pursued Midian and brought the heads of Oreb and Zeb to Gideon on the other side of the Jordan. Wow. What an amazing thing. Doesn't that want to bring you to the point of worship today? It's like, wow, look what God did. And Gideon was now far along in his faith journey that he was in a place that now God could use him and the credit wouldn't go to his head and the, and the, and the people would understand that this was God giving the victory instead of man giving them the victory. Amen? That's what we see in this, in this story. Now, remember when God told him that this would happen and Gideon didn't believe him at the beginning of that story. God called Gideon, you mighty man of valor, he calls him. He didn't feel so mighty. And I did remember, I'm going to finish the story. <laughs> and uh, That's how I felt in that moment. And here's what my brother did. My brother was a, a great wrestler. And he came up to me and he, he walked to the, to the diagram that shows who's wrestling whom and when. And he says, all right, you see what's going on? These two guys are going to wrestle and you're going to have to take on the winner of these two. So we went and we watched it together. And he'd say, okay, you know what? You can beat this guy. You're better on the ground than him. You just got to get him on the ground. Let me show you this, this great takedown. It's called an ankle pick. And so he showed me the ankle pick and we went over and we just started doing, practicing the ankle pick. And, and sure enough, I was able to do an ankle pick, got him down, and, and beat the next guy. And then he said, all right, well, then here's what you're going to take on next. And he said, oh, you see this guy? Oh, yeah, he's a leg rider. Here's how you're going to stop that. And so we'd start working on that. This is on the fly. Where he's teaching me, you know, all of these things. And one by one, he walked me through, and, and I actually saved that medal. And this is the bronze medal that I got that day. Now, 
what's the big deal? This is a 98-pound class. It's not that it's a big deal, right? It's not that, it's not that big of a deal. Here's the thing, though. I learned more from that day than I did in a lot of other accomplishments in life because God can teach us through our, our failures. And one of the things that he taught me that day was that failure is no time to stop and give up and, and, and have self-pity. And, uh, failure is a time to say, great, now I have an opportunity to learn something. And that's one of the things that we, that we see here as we, as we study the life of, of Gideon. And that what we find here is, is that it reminds us that God's ultimate goal for us is victory, right? His ultimate goal for us is perfection, but his daily goal for us is growth. And so when we get knocked down and we, we, we lose, and God's, that's okay. He comes alongside us. What can we learn from that? Now let's move on. How can we have a victory the next time around? How can we do this from here on out? How can we continue to go? And so all of a sudden, we get to this point where, and I felt like, for me, for a seventh grader to get a medal, I was so excited, I was so proud of that medal, that I put it somewhere where I'd never lose it, and I, apparently I was right, because I found it yesterday. And, uh, and, yet, and yet, we go back to the beginning, and we remember when we were saying, oh, there's just no way this is going to happen. Now again, I don't care if anyone in here is good at wrestling, that's not the point. The point is, in our spiritual lives, is where we need to apply this. God, God's calling us to do some great things. If you're a believer, he's called you to do great things. And we might say, well, I don't think we can. God is in the business of developing our courage. And this is a renovation of sorts of Gideon's life that we are open to receiving ourselves and saying, God, renovate me too. Renovate me too. Give me courage. Build my courage so that I can do whatever it is you've called me to do. One step at a time. When I think of, of the, the applications, I'm going to come up with I have four things I want, I want to share. Four questions really for introspection with applications. Number one is this. Have you identified who God is? If you're trying to win victories on your own, good luck. But God's not going to give you victories. And, those things. and if he does it, it's not an act of mercy. It, it, he's he's going to give you failures as an act of mercy to get you back to where you need to be. And, and um, so have you identified who God is at this point? And if not, accept him now. In just a few moments, I'm going to give you an opportunity to respond. And if you've never accepted Jesus Christ to be your Lord and Savior, if you've never identified him to be your Lord and Savior, then right now is the moment to do that. Number two, have you gotten rid of all of your idols? All the things that take the place of God in your life. And if not, surrender them today. If there's anything in your life that say, I would do more for Christ except whatever you fill in that blank with, that's an idol, you need to lay it at the altar. And I'm going to ask you just to get out of your seat, to come right up to the front and just pray that to the Lord and say, Lord, this is what I'm surrendering to you today. I'm going to chop down that idol and surrender that to you today. Number three, are you willing to serve without getting credit? Are you willing to get rid of the, the, the pride and just say, you know what, Lord, I'm going to serve you in any way. And if that means it's some private ministry that no one sees, then, it's gonna, then, then I'll do it. And you know what? The church thrives on that. The church thrives on that. We, uh, a few weeks ago, we had a, um, 
a, a day where we, we just invited people to come and do some painting and repairs and things, just a, a fix-up day. And we had people come in and do that. And, and I, I, well, I'm not going to say who because I would embarrass the person, but one of those men saw a need and he said, you know what, I see some other things that need to be painted. And, and so he came in throughout the week on his own time and repainted the entire kitchen. I don't want to say his name because I know he wouldn't want me to say his name. But that's the kind of stuff where the church thrives. When we're willing to get past ourselves and say, I don't care about the credit because all the credit goes to God anyway. And we serve God with that. And then lastly is, um, I would say um, the last question, is your ministry an act of worship? Does it bring you to that point of worship or is it just about, I'm going to try to accomplish great things for God so I can get great rewards in heaven? If it, is it, and that's not all about you. It's about your relationship with God. Is your ministry, whatever your ministry is, is it an act of worship, part of your relationship with God? And uh, so to, to answer, I'd say start worshiping, start serving, start worshiping through your service. Let's, before, before I have the invitation, I'd like to just have you bow your heads and close your eyes. And I just want to ask, is there anyone here who would have to say, you know what, Pastor Dave, my application today is, is the very first one. Uh, I have not identified who God is. I've never accepted Jesus Christ to be my Lord and Savior. And I want to tell you right now, it says in Romans 10, verse 9, it says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. I'll tell you, you have a room full of people that are going to be praying for you right now, that you respond right here, right now. If you've never made that decision, that's the most important decision you could ever make. Come forward and say, you know what, Jesus, I accept you to be my Lord, to be my Savior. I believe that you died on the cross to pay for my sins. I accept that gift of eternal life. That's all you have to do in your own words. I'd ask you to come forward as well and just make that, say that prayer. And if the Lord's working with you in any other way, maybe idols in your life you want to get rid of, or maybe you just need prayer for courage right now, then just come to the, for, to, come to the front and, we'll be, and we will pray together for you and with you to the Lord. Let me pray and then we'll sing. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much that you work with people like Gideon, like us. Lord, there, there may be some in here that don't know you personally. They've never accepted your Son as their Lord and Savior. I pray right now that send your Holy Spirit to convict them in such a way that there's no way they can do anything but jump out of their seats when we, when we pray and come forward. And Lord, I know that, that there are people in this room that have idols in their lives or people that are going through difficult things and they need to be reminded of the courage that you give. So Lord, I pray that we will respond in prayer and in worship. Lord, there may be some here today that you've already taken them through some great victories and maybe they just want to come forward to give worship to you. What a great God you are for getting me through, for giving me the victories that you have. Whatever, Lord, I pray that everything we do from this point on in this service would be an act of worship to you and I pray this in Christ's name.